Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. In May 2018, the MacArthur Memorial hosted a World War I symposium that explored how the experience of World War I shaped many of America's World War II leaders. James Zobel, archivist of the MacArthur Memorial, discussed Douglas MacArthur's experience of World War I. Uh, I called this paper, um, before anything else, Be Bold, because uh, basically that is Douglas MacArthur. Uh, that is his mantra, uh, the belief in the sense that bold action is usually the decisive key factor in winning battles and oftentimes in winning wars, and this is what he will go into the war with. These are what his peers have taught him, and his experience in World War I will only reinforce that sense that bold action is what leads to victory. In World War II, after 1943, all those leapfrog operations back to the Philippines, uh, they can't be described as anything else but. And then as well as when you get into Korea and everybody's looking at, the, at a Dunkirk, here comes Inchon and wrestles victory right out of defeat. And then, of course, it fails him at the end of Korea, uh, the drive to the Yalo. Let's be bold. Let's seal off the border. Let's end this thing when we can. 400,000 Chinese pretty much changed Douglas MacArthur's idea of bold action. But I could have also called it, let us be prepared lest we perish. These are also the words of Douglas MacArthur. Because after World War I, all he was concerned about was the preparation for the next war. You know, like he always said, only the dead have seen the end of war. And MacArthur would be definitely shaped by what he had seen. Right after the war, superintendent of West Point, all these revolutionary reforms that he pushes through to try and train a new style of officer is all from that experience of World War I. As well, his chief of staff period in the interwar years from 1930 to 1935. This is all about saving the officer corps during the Depression, the officer corps that goes on to train the army that wins World War II. And that's what I mean. World War I has this impression that totally affects him through the interwar years as to how is America going to be prepared for that next war. Now, most remember MacArthur at 71 an old man being fired by Truman, uh, being brought home, given that speech, the old soldiers never die speech. And that's most people's visions of him. They don't picture MacArthur as a young officer, 38 years of old, uh, in the World War I. He amassed an incredible record as Chief of Staff as well as Brigadier General of the 42nd Rainbow Division. If you don't know, the Rainbow Division was pretty much at the broken end of a bottle throughout World War I. That means they were right in the front, right in the mix, uh, taking heavy casualties throughout. Uh, MacArthur is throughout in this. And the first war will influence him basically for the rest of his life. Now I talk about MacArthur's peers uh, as far as what he learns as a young officer. Well, the number one peer to him is Arthur MacArthur, his father, the Civil War hero, the boy colonel of the Civil War. 17 years old, he goes in. Perryville, Stones River, Chattanooga, Kennesaw Mountain, Franklin. He's wounded extremely badly in Kennesaw Mountain as well as Franklin. He'll walk for the rest of his life after that with a limp. 
as well this charge up Missionary Ridge in November of 1863, where Arthur MacArthur takes the flag and plants it on top of Missionary Ridge in front of Braxton Bragg's headquarters, and the first one up there. What's the lesson from that? It totally kicked the Confederate Army out of Tennessee into Georgia, this bold action. MacArthur will have this reinforced. His mentor from 1912-1914 is Leonard Wood, Medal of Honor, Apache Wars, with Teddy Roosevelt, the Rough Riders in San Juan Hill, Pitch Kettle Hill, pretty much ended the war campaign on land in Cuba. This bold action taking that. 1914, MacArthur's under Frederick Funston. Funston is Arthur MacArthur, his dad's best friend. And he basically ended the Filipino insurrection by going on this bold action, capturing Gen General Aguinaldo at his hideout headquarters and ending the insurrection as far as it was concerned right then. These are MacArthur's peers, as well as Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, MacArthur serves as his aide. Teddy Roosevelt is the most famous person in the turn of the century. Uh, Secretary of the Navy, he had been a guy who had gone out west, Panama Canal, the Great White Fleet, speak softly, carry a big stick, and Teddy Roosevelt is a guy who thinks war is a good thing. That's the way you prove yourself as a man. And these are all the influences that are acting on MacArthur before he goes into World War I. He pretty much sees war as an adventure, a way to prove himself to his peers. Now, his peers are not his college classmates at West Point. They're his father. They're Funston. They're Wood. You know, these guys that he thinks he is part of, of this ancient class of warriors. Now, in World War I, MacArthur will be the chief of staff of the Rainbow Division. He will also be a brigade commander for the Rainbow Division. And like all of these other gentlemen we're working on, he wants to see combat service, and he will see a great deal of it. He's a trained officer. He had been an engineer. He had had command of troops uh, from 1908 to 09, uh, engineer uh, company out of Fort Leavenworth. And also at Leavenworth, uh, which was the command and general staff college, MacArthur doesn't go to the staff college. While he's at Leavenworth, he's the commissary officer. He's the quartermaster officer. He is the guy who makes sure the post runs. He's getting all this experience of how to run different facets of the army. So when he goes in as chief of staff, he's well trained. His commanders, William Mann, Charles Menaher, Flagler, they all say this guy is tops. Because the main thing about MacArthur is he has this expert ability to pick people for the right position. You're good at counting beans? Great. You're going to be counting beans all day long. You can pitch buttons into a jar? That's your job. And so he puts this staff together. They all do their different facets. And people said, they said, oh, MacArthur's got this great staff. Let's take that guy from it. And they'd bring him into their organization, and he was totally worthless to them. You know, because they didn't know he was the bean counter. So MacArthur trains this staff to work the way they do so that he can be going on all these raids. He can be in all these actions. His belief was that I have to know what the front looks like. i got to know if artillery has obliterated this hill, if they've moved this machine gun position. He feels he has to be at the front. Now, many actions we know about. And you can see the decorations over there in the museum for all of them. Many of them we don't. 
Because a lot of them weren't written down, and MacArthur didn't write them down in his memoirs. At the Champagne Defensive in July of 1918, MacArthur served with Henri Gouraud, the Fourth Army, the French commander. This guy was called the Lion of Africa. He was wounded by an arrow as a young officer. He got shot in the shoulder, leading a division 1914 in the Ardennes Forest. 1915, he got blown up at Gallipoli. You know, lost an arm, lost half of his leg, and he's just pretty much carrying himself around. Well, this guy is a warrior. And he only served with Douglas MacArthur for two weeks. And he said later on that Douglas MacArthur was the bravest and most capable officer he had ever served with in his career. As well, Charles Menher, commander of the division, said there is no action you can be in on the field where you might not look up and find Douglas MacArthur with you. He's the bloodiest officer in this army. Now, we have no idea what Douglas MacArthur did at the Champagne. We know that he was in the front line trenches when the Germans came in. But other than that, we know very, what did Garros see? You know, that made him say, this is the greatest officer I've ever served with. Now, as well, at the Champagne, this is where MacArthur's perceptions of war completely change. He had gone into it looking at it as an adventure. At the Champagne, under Garot's elastic defense, they slaughtered thousands of Germans. And MacArthur sees it for what it is. War is slaughter. War is a scourge. He would say, after that, I lost the ability to play. I lost the ability to have fun. Billy Mitchell, the great air proponent, had two sisters. MacArthur dated both of them. After World War I, uh, they came to visit him, and they said he was not the same guy. He used to be full of fun. He used to have great stories. He used to be a fun guy to just talk with, and none of that was there anymore. The war had totally changed him. After that Champagne defensive, the rainbow got put into the Ork River battle. Now, the Ork River is a place that the Germans had set up a pretty situated defense. After they left the Marne, after those early offensives in 18, they were going back to set positions. MacArthur realized that at the Ork River, the rainbow had to fight in a bowl that went up to the heights. They had, it was like their Gettysburg, and their division got slaughtered. Uh, half, half of it is pretty much uh, reduced. And this is where MacArthur sees that bold action. Because the group that had been in there before, in the 26th Division, when the Germans pulled back, they hadn't pressed them. They hadn't kept on them to let them, to not let them build that defensive structure on the Ork River. When the Rainbow Division pushes them off those heights after they take them, MacArthur knows that. He's just been made brigade commander of the 83rd Brigade. He's like, we cannot let this group go set themselves up on the Vili River because the division behind us is just going to get slaughtered. You've got to press them. You've got to push them. He walks the entire line of the Rainbow Division on August 2nd after all those massive countries. You've got to press it. We've got to push it one more time. We've got to get this thing on them. This is the way MacArthur starts to see the war. At San Miel, the campaign right after, where the Americans just walked over the German defensives. MacArthur gets to Chateau Saint-Benoit, which has a good view of the Germans retreating because they pulled out right before we went in. And they're pulling back towards Metz. MacArthur, these people are moving. This is the opportunity. This is where we drive right to Metz that has the railway centers that supply all those troops on the Western Front. If we take that, the war will be over now. Now, Pershing knew that too, and that's what he wanted to do, but World War I was fought under these rigid plans, restrictions. Pershing had agreed he would move his men right to the Meuse-Argonne right afterward. And so this opportunity to end the war then was lost. MacArthur recognizes that because a month later, his division is destroyed at the Côte de Châtillon. 
Now, this position was the key position of the Hindenburg Line, and the 42nd was brought in as basically shock troops to take it, a three-day battle, and they are reduced significantly. The war ends shortly after that. MacArthur goes into occupation duty where these ideas start crystallizing in his mind. As you were saying earlier, the officers, they weren't trained, they weren't ready. Everybody remarks about how brave the American forces were, but they were being slaughtered because the officers weren't ready. America wasn't ready. And these are the things that are crystallizing in his mind in Germany. When he comes back to the United States in 1919, April, the first position or the first person he has to go see is the chief of staff, Peyton March. Now, Peyton March had been the chief of artillery or an artillery officer under Arthur MacArthur, you know, Douglas's dad. He was the guy who really kept MacArthur's brigadier generalship after the war rather than being reduced. He tells MacArthur, I want you to take over West Point. West Point, 40 years behind the times. You know, we've got all these new innovations in warfare. We need to get these officers up to speed. What's going on? And it was the truth. War, uh, West Point was destroyed. There was over 9,100 officers that were killed in World War I. And a lot of them were coming in West Point. In October of 1918, uh, they graduated pretty much the whole corps. And that eradicates that old spirit of West Point. There's nobody there anymore. It eradicates the code of honor because the upperclassmen aren't there to instill it. So West Point is really a mess. As well, Congress is not interested in giving any money to West Point because all they see it as this place where brutes haze younger cadets. And as well, MacArthur's going to have to work against an academic board that is totally entrenched in its own guarding of its own rice bowl. And they just see MacArthur as this transient figure that'll come through for three years and then he'll be gone, but we'll still be here. But MacArthur is uh, not one to put up with any kind of anti-MacArthur thoughts. <laughs> and that's the main problem. These reforms are great. Uh, they really are. He believes that you have to get a new type of officer we were talking about. Uh, he believed that now it was total war. Nations were at war. Professional armies had shown they could not handle World War I. It had gone to conscripts. It had gone to this citizen army. And that's what MacArthur believes, is that now we are bringing citizens in. You don't have just a bunch of grunts coming in. You've got doctors, lawyers, businessmen, you know, all these people who have a good life on their own, but now they're coming in. And you can't be brutish to them. MacArthur believes that officers have to know psychology, sociology, economics, all these things. So when this citizen army is brought in, they can be able to deal with them. We don't want technical masters. We want versatile officers that can handle any situation. He tries to change the entire curriculum. He tells all the teachers there, I need you to go out to the other universities, see what's going on. I need you to go to the army posts so that you start integrating what's actually going on in the army with your class. MacArthur as well gets rid of the old Fort Clinton. And what that was, was all the cadets would come there uh, during the summer. It was the break from the year's work. And it was basically a show. You wore the old-time clothes, and you had hops and dances, and you associated with all the girls and everything. And MacArthur was like, what are we doing? Still training for the War of 1812? So he totally abolishes this Fort Clinton, which totally ticks off all the old guard. Because they love that. You know, it was good for us. Why isn't it good for them? But MacArthur now takes the, the cadets, and he's sending them to Fort Dix. You're going to be there for the summer. You're going to learn exactly what goes on in the Army. And when you come back, you're not on a bus. I'm marching you back. 
you know, let's get these guys to understand what war is really like. Also, he ends that hazing there. Uh, they used to have what they called the beast barracks. MacArthur was like, we're not trying to create a bunch of brutes. We need officers that can deal with people. He puts the new, the new plebes that come in under regular officers. They're no longer under the first class, which again, totally angers the old guard. You know, it was good enough for us. Why isn't it good enough for them? And finally, MacArthur saw that the best officers, the best soldiers were those that were athletes. And MacArthur starts the whole intramural program at West Point. You are required to take three semesters of intramurals if you're not in one of the uh, top sports, uh, and you will excel trying to create this new officer that will come. Now, when MacArthur left, many of his reforms right out the window. He knew when Fred Slayton was coming in, he wrote his chief of staff, he's like, well, I guess they don't like what I was doing. And Slayton, sure enough, got rid of most of them. But as the years went by, they brought them all back in. And that's why William Ganneau said MacArthur was not the father of West Point, but he was definitely the savior of it. Same thing, chief of staff. MacArthur's brought back 1930, top general, chief of staff, pinnacle of your career, hadn't even gotten to World War II yet. And MacArthur is put in this position. It's the middle of the depression. It's the middle of the pacifism run. It's a lot of hostile congressmen who believe that every new penny should go into air power or mechanization. MacArthur's got a lot he's got to fight against. Now, the National Defense Act 1920 said you would have 12,000 offers and 165,000 troops. This would be that professional corps that would train those citizen conscripts that come in. But this had never been lived up to throughout the 20s or the 30s. And now you've got Herbert Hoover under the Depression. He's saying, I'm going to cut 8 more million. I'm going to cut 11 more million. And MacArthur is very worried. If you don't have the officer corps, who is going to train that next group for that next war? That's what his whole business becomes, saving the officer corps. He believes in mechanization. He'll put, they put money into... Uh, trying to get the different new proponents of what they're going to need. Uh, they're looking into air power, but he gets rid of the mechanized force, this group that they had put together under Adna Chaffee as to supplant the foot soldier. And basically they were all working with obsolete World War I tanks that couldn't run. As well, you didn't have that whole fleet of people in the background servicing those tanks. This was all a lot of money that was going to be chewed up by the small funds that they're getting, as well as air power. And MacArthur's whole thing is, why are you going to build these things now and build a ton of them when in 10 years they'll be obsolete maybe when the war starts? You know, let's keep it on the line till we got this stuff we can use. B-17, M1, 150-millimeter howitzer all created during his time period. But MacArthur's also got uh, these cuts. Roosevelt comes in 1932. He tells MacArthur, we're going to slash a budget. You're going to lose 2,000 of those 12,000 officers. And MacArthur supposedly looked at him and said, all right, well, that next war, that last breath out of that boy's mouth is going to be Roosevelt, not MacArthur. You know, I quit. And Roosevelt's like, you get back here, I'm the president, you can't talk to me like that, nah. you know. MacArthur's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know, I, I got a little out of control. Roosevelt's like, don't worry about it, you know, we'll get the budget, you can save it, saves the officer corps. 
And the next year, Roosevelt really looks to MacArthur because when he creates a civil conservation corps, uh, the government can't handle it. The army has to do it. And MacArthur, during his period as chief of staff, they had this nine core area for the United States where that group would be ahead of that region. MacArthur then creates a four army plan where those nine core areas go into four quarter armies that will serve the different coasts. And MacArthur uses this plan to mobilize the Civilian Conservation Corps. Does it overnight. Brings them in, gets them clothed, gets them fed, gets them into the camps. You know, Roosevelt's just like, oh, you're my guy now. You know, he'll call him the most dangerous man in America, but he also realizes this guy's got a lot of talent. And then, as comes in 35, at the end of MacArthur's tenure, finally the money comes through. They give him everything they want uh, the, to build that National Defense Act, 165,000-man army and the 12,000 officers. This comes through because MacArthur just kept pressing. You know, be bold, press them. And pretty much angers everybody in Washington. You know, and then, as we learned about the bonus march, 1932, all the World War I veterans marched on Washington. MacArthur would never admit they were veterans. They were all communists. No veteran of the United States would do that. That's how disconnected he is at this time. And so when they go in and they run out the camps and uh, MacArthur ignores orders not to cross the Anacostia Bridge, he believes he's going in to stop a revolution. You know, and there's Eisenhower that night. Stay away from the press. Don't talk to him. And there's MacArthur. Get out of my way. They were all communists. You know, there goes his total reputation right in the dumper. And that's why he leaves in 35 to go to the Philippines to build their defense force. And he doesn't ever plan on coming back to the United States. That's why everything he owns gets destroyed in the Philippines in 1945. Now, MacArthur's plan for the Philippines, he wrote it up in 1936, what he thought they could do to build this defense force. They were going to get their independence. And in that plan for examples of how World War I is influencing MacArthur's plan. Gallipoli was the worst amphibious operation in memory. They're going to have to do that to come to the Philippines. I've seen people fighting on home ground hold off odds four to five to one. That's the Germans in World War I. Citizen Army, same thing. And as well, MacArthur believes that, as you saw in World War I, when things start going down the tubes, you're going to see a lot of other uh, people responding, a lot of dominoes falling, on another allies falling, coming into the fray, the United States. MacArthur is promised all this money to build up this force. He's promised all these munitions, but it's a depression. Nothing comes in. He's got no money, and he's basically ridiculed by everybody back in Washington. And MacArthur becomes this loner. World War II comes along. Now, he's called in late. He had resigned from the Army. He's brought back July of 1941. They're trying to pump uh, 200 B-17s to make it this interdiction spot uh, into the Philippines and build up the force there. Uh, but they can only get about 35 of them there before the war. They got about 70 P-40s all outclassed by the Zeros. And pretty much you lose your Air Force the first day. A couple of days later, the Navy base at Cavite's lost. And MacArthur's facing a situation where surrender is really the option that's coming. MacArthur adopts the style of the only man he knows that was commander, John J. Pershing. Immaculately dressed, the tie, which he's never really worn before in combat, you know, and he's just this stiff upper lip uh, situation, all confidence. 
Unlike Pershing, he's 61, whereas Pershing was about 52. MacArthur also thinks he's got chicken legs and can't make it anymore. He'll prove that wrong later on. But MacArthur suffers from the worst criticisms of the World War I commanders. MacArthur's committing. You know, had he forgotten? All those guys on Bataan, they knew about his World War I exploits. Why isn't he over here? You know, he only went there once. Same way when you get down to Australia, New Guinea, at Papua New Guinea, you know, never visits the front, has all his officers doing it. You know, I think that has a lot to do with the condition he thought he was in. But I also, you know, the criticism's well-deserved. And he knew it. But MacArthur's whole thing, the dugout dug and all that, he's 61 years old. I got to prove myself all over again? And he resolved that he did. Because after 1943, as all the supplies are starting to come in, he's got the commanders he wants, he's got the ability to move around, that's where the old MacArthur comes back. Away goes the tie, away goes the ribbons, all you see is the guy in the open khaki shirt, you see this bold World War I guy come back. I'm going to land on every single beach with every invasion. Which he does. And once he gets that group together, and he's able to make moves. It's like the Ork River. It's like San Miel again. Keep him pressed. Keep moving. Keep moving. 1944, he wants to make this 580-mile leap to the Admiralties. It's never been heard of, you know, amphibious run. But he just found a whole code book or a whole trunk full of all Japanese code books. You know, so he knows he can make it in safety. But he's got this island called the Admiralties in his rear, and he's got to take them out first. Now, the thing is, he knows there's 5,000 troops on the Admiralties. But he's got his air chief saying, there's no air cover, there's no laundry, there's no cook fires. Let's go in right now. Now, MacArthur has to have those islands to be able to push that invasion of Hollandia. As well, the combined chiefs are looking to shut MacArthur's drive down and just go with the Central Pacific drive under Nimitz. And so does this bold, incredible action, the seizure of the admiralties, really have more to do with I'm going to the Philippines than anything else? Probably. But MacArthur pushes it two months in advance. Not, we're not going to take the whole 1st Cavalry Division. We're just going to put a 1,000 guys in there. We're going to put them on two destroyers, take them in overnight, drop them right there, and I'm going to go on the beach with them. And MacArthur does and tells Chase, great, we've got a hold, keep your teeth in them, and I'm going to get reinforcements. This was the bold strike. And JCS, combined chiefs, were about to shut MacArthur down, and he was able to go in. I just took the admiralties. You know, what? Okay, keep going. You know, and that's what it is. When they land at Hollandia, MacArthur lands on the beach, and he's there with Robert Eichelberger. And he's like, Bob, what do you think we push 500 miles, you know, west right now? <laughs> that hasn't been planned for. We can't do that. You know, and that's MacArthur. Keep them bold. Keep them off balance. Keep them pressed. You know, the same as they move across New Guinea into the Philippines. It's all after 43. It's MacArthur as the World War I guy again. That's the only way you achieve victory. What's the other lesson? The surrender ceremony. Now, after World War I, the Kaiser took off to Holland. Ludendorff and Hindenburg, they, was, they weren't out the, signing the peace or the armistice. You know, they totally got off scot-free. Now, the U.S. and MacArthur was going to make sure that everybody in the world saw it. They staged it right on a U.S. battleship, and they had the government and the imperial forces sign that surrender. So there is no stab in the back theory. 
you know what happened. Same thing in the occupation. MacArthur had been under the German occupation at the end of World War I, thought he knew was the best qualified to take over the Japanese occupation. And MacArthur saw that the main lesson of World War I's occupation, and he said no occupation is ever successful, but after the occupation started, we kept that blockade on Germany, and they were starving to death. And that had a lot to do with pushing those people into that Nazi camp later on. You know, because they remembered that. So MacArthur, unlike Iraq and Afghanistan, not one penny was going into Japan. They were on their own. But MacArthur did that study that his first year and realized that you would have millions of Japanese die of starvation as well as disease if something wasn't done. MacArthur violates his orders, opens the food stocks, goes on a public health campaign. That's what wins the Japanese over to it. And that's all that experience of World War I as well. Let's give the women the right to vote. It was the best thing we did over in Germany. And as well, preparation. MacArthur sees that after World War II, the United States has completely drawn down all its forces, just like World War I. We've got all that message traffic over there where he's screaming, you've got three battalion regiments down to two battalions. You've got three regiment divisions down to two regiments. You were sending me officers that are not worth anything. You were sending me uh, soldiers that are basically convicts. This isn't going to play the next time it comes out. And sure enough, here you go. Five years later, uh, Kim Jong or Kim Il Sung invades South Korea. It's all gloom and doom, except to MacArthur. You know what did I do in World War Two? What did I do in World War One? Let's be bold. Inchon. I mean, you were facing Dunkirk. You're about to get kicked off. And MacArthur and the United States Marine Corps pull off this amazing bold strike, which in two weeks totally changes the fortunes of the war. North Koreans screaming across the border and everybody back at the Pentagon calling MacArthur the sorcerer of Inchon. Pulled the rabbit out of the hat again. But that got everybody ginned up, especially Truman. Got the UN resolution pushed forth to the north. Unite the country, hold free elections. MacArthur again, let's be bold. Let's go to the border. Let's seal it off. And it all fails him. He ignores the warnings. He says they're all volunteers. They can only get 30 to 50,000 in here. And here comes 400,000 Chinese. That idea of let's be bold had finally failed him. Now, armistice that we talked about before. MacArthur's whole belief is if you don't end this thing now, unconditional surrender, you're going to be dealing with the Korean problem for the next 70 years. Here we are. So as you can see, World War I was a great influence on Douglas MacArthur throughout the rest of his career. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.